John chapter 15. As a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John this past year, and the Gospel of John is a biography of the of the ministry of Jesus. It's one of four biographies that God has seen fit to give us. It's uh, a biography of Him, and um, it's what one person has called a theography because it shows us the way that Christ is not only man but also God. And so um, the Gospel of John is, is one of these biographies, and what, where we've been in the Gospel of John is Jesus has already had his last meal with his disciples. He's already um, washed the disciples' feet, and uh, he started to teach them and give him his ethic of love. Um, in fact, John 13 is really setting the agenda for much of the rest of the Gospel, where Jesus says, as, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And last week, we, we got to this section where Jesus was promising the disciples that if they would obey his commandments, if they would follow him, if they would keep his word, um, that they would have communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we talked about how, um, how the only way to, to do that, to, to love one another well, is if, we, is if we love Jesus. And the only way to love Jesus enough to love one another is by abiding in the vine, and we kind of led into our passage this week. And so this is a, a wonderful place um, to end our, our uh, study in John for the fall as we look at what it means to abide in Christ. And so I'm going to encourage you to turn um, in your Bible to the book of John, John 15, and I'll go ahead and read these 17 verses, and then we'll talk about it for a bit. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is, like, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I, have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Father, have we pray one more time that you would cause your word to abide in us, that your word would abide in us, and that through it we would abide in your Son, and so bear much fruit. For Father, we believe that in that you are glorified, and we rejoice. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. Well, the animals had a problem. The animals had a problem, and it was a lion. See, this lion chased monkeys on Monday, and kangaroos on Tuesday, and zebras on Wednesday, and bears on Thursday, and camels on Friday, and on Saturday, elephants. So the, the animals... Well, the, the animals had this problem with this lion. And it says uh, in this children's book, I love this book, since he caught everything he ran after, that lion should have been as fat as butter. But he wasn't at all. The more he ate, the scrawnier and the hungrier he grew. The other animals didn't feel one bit safe. They stood at a distance and tried to talk things over with the tawny, scrawny lion. It's all your fault for running away, he grumbled. 
If I didn't have to run, run, run for every single bite I get, I'd be as fat as butter and sleek as satin. And then I wouldn't have to eat so much, and you'd last longer. Just then, a fat little rabbit came hopping through the forest, picking berries. And all the big animals looked at him, grinning slyly. Rabbit, they said. Oh, you lucky rabbit, we appoint you to talk things over with the lion. Well, that made the little rabbit feel very proud. What shall I talk about, he asked eagerly. Any old thing, said the big animals. The important thing is to go right up close. So the, bi- so the fat little rabbit hopped right up to the big hungry lion and counted his ribs. You look much too scrawny to talk things over, he said. So how about supper at my house first? What's for supper, asked the lion. The, li- the little rabbit said, carrot stew. That sounded awful to the lion. But the little rabbit said, yes, sir. My five fat sisters and my four fat brothers are making a delicious big carrot stew right now. What are we waiting for? cried the lion. And he went hopping away with the little rabbit, thinking of ten fat rabbits, and looking just as jolly as you please. Well, grinned all the big animals, that should take care of old Tawny Scrawny for today. But imagine their surprise when just a couple days later, on Monday, the lion didn't want monkeys. And on Tuesday, he didn't want kangaroos. And Wednesday, he didn't want zebras. And he wasn't hungry for bears on Thursday or camels on Friday or elephants on Saturday. And so all the big animals are so surprised and happy. And they dressed up in their best and they go to see the fat little rabbit. Rabbit, they said, oh, you wonderful rabbit. What in the world did you talk to the tawny, scrawny, hungry, terrible lion about? This is, I love this story. It's a story of change. And the big animals want to know, how does a lion become a lamb? How does a terror become a friend? How does somebody who is so dark and sinister and selfish become someone who is generous and giving? How does someone who takes, 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 become somebody who gives, gives, gives? What happened to the lion? Maybe some of you know what that change is like. You've seen that change in your own life, that you, before you came to know Christ, that you, you were a terror to all who were near you, and yet through the slow walk of discipleship, one step at a time, you've become changed from a lion into a lamb, from a terror into a friend. Or maybe you're wanting to see that change in your life. Maybe when you look down into your own heart, you see nothing but selfishness and bitterness and anger. Or maybe you do things that you never thought that you would do, and you're hoping that nobody catches you. You feel like a fraud whenever anybody else is watching you, and you wish you could change, but you just don't know how. How does someone go from being a terror to a friend? How can someone be changed? How can they be transformed? The passage that we have before us today lies out uh, for us how we can be changed, how we can see concrete fruit in our life, how we can be transformed, how we can go from being a terror to being a friend. Now, I'm going to give you the the passage kind of, the best way to think about it is it works its way out in three questions. And so I'm going to give you the outline of the passage, but I'm going to warn you for my sermon, I'm going to go out of order. So if you write down this outline at first, you're going to get confused when I'm skipping around, but it's just the best way to communicate it. But just so you can understand the way the passage is flowing. From verses 1 through five-ish, approximately. It's answering the question, how can I produce fruit? And then from verses 6 through 11, it's answering the question, what good is the fruit? And then from verses 12 through 17, it's answering the question, what is the fruit? 
But today, I want to start from the end and then go to the beginning and then end in the middle. So this is the pattern we're going to follow. What is how? What is the fruit that I should produce? Then how can I produce fruit? And then what good is the fruit? That's the order of the questions that I'm going to answer. That what is the fruit that I should produce? What is the change that I should expect to see as a Christian? How does and then how does that change happen? How can I see that fruit? How can I work with the grain of salvation, not against it? And then what good is that fruit? What what are the benefits for me if I do change? What what should I look for for motivation? So what is the fruit? How can I produce fruit? And then what good does the fruit have? And and the fruit is real simple. The fruit is told to us in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, it, it's told to us in verse 17. These things I command you so that you would love one another. And he's already told us in chapter 13, after he washed the disciples' feet and gave it to them as a picture of what it looks like to, 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 um, to love one another, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So what is the fruit that Jesus is expecting that those who are his people will produce? It's love for one another. You and I would produce love as he has loved us. Now, what are three qualities? What are three qualities of that, of that love? What does that love look like? Let me give you three ways that this love looks. First, this love is costly. Jesus says in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. It's a costly love. The love, the fruit that God is calling us to as his people is that we would love one another in a generous, liberal, abundant way that costs us something. It's sacrificial. It's also a love that initiates. If we are to love him as he has loved us, this is how he tells us that he loves us. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So the love that we are supposed to produce initiates that as Christians, we should be the ones to to seek forgiveness and seek reconciliation. We should love somebody before they're able to love in return. We should love somebody before they do love in return. That we should love one another with a love that initiates. We don't wait and sit on our hands for somebody else to love us. Rather, we love as we have been loved. And then third, it's Christian love. The love that is highlighted here is love specifically for one another. The love in this passage is highlighted. That's highlighted is the love that we should give to other Christians. Now, again, we've said this, but... I believe God, I hope this is not controversial, I believe God wants you to love everybody, okay? No controversy there? Okay, good. What this passage is teaching, what John 13 and John 15 and much of the New Testament is teaching, a couple weeks ago I gave you 40 or so imperatives, is that there's a special love that Christians are called to give to one another, to other Christians, that the, the primary marker of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ is that we would love other Christians, that we would love one another, that our, our love for Christians ought to be, it ought to be um, of a special quality um, because it's the kind of love that other Christians give to one another. This kind of initiating, costly, sacrificial love that, that is felt in the, the, the church and amongst the people of God. Remember last week how we talked about how the church is the school of love and it's the gym of love where we train ourselves how to give and receive love and so prepare ourselves for communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit that God is calling you to. And if you are here today and you said, that seems hard, you are correct. That is not an easy fruit to produce, and it is not something you can produce on your own. This is not a fruit. This is not a thing that, that you can muster up from within you. It's not, it's, not the, it's not something that you can just find down deep somewhere in there and, and pull it out and, and, and white-knuckle it and make yourself love others. 
This is not how our hearts are naturally oriented, and they need to be reprogrammed and reoriented and refurbished and renovated so that they love the way that God wants us to love. So the question is, how can I produce fruit? If that's what the fruit is, how can I get there? How, how can I produce that fruit that God is expecting me to as a Christian? Well, you produce that fruit by being in the vine. You produce that fruit by being under the vine or by abiding in Christ. How can I produce fruit? I produce that fruit by abiding in Christ. To which the question that you should ask is, how do I get into Christ in the first place? If I produce the fruit by abiding in Christ, well, how do I get there so that I can abide there? Let me give you three ways, three ways this passage tells us that we are put into the vine. Okay, three ways that we are put into the vine so that we can produce this fruit and abide in Christ. Uh, Number one, we are unconditionally chosen. We are unconditionally chosen. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You should go and bear fruit. So how do we get put in the vine? Well, first, we're unconditionally chosen. This is not saying that Christians don't choose Christ. Of course, Christians choose Christ. I would never tell you not to choose Christ. But what it's saying is what determines whether or not you choose Christ is not whether or not you chose him, but whether or not he chose you. That in, in the, the, the way that eternity works, God did not look down eternity and say, I think that person is going to choose me, so I'm going to choose them. I'm, I'm going I'm to reciprocate to them. But rather, God looked down eternity and he saw that you weren't going to choose him and he chose you anyway so that you would choose him. He doesn't choose you because you choose him. You choose him because he chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit. That's, by the way, why God chose you, that you would bear fruit. That's, of course, what Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 teaches us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world in him so that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's why God chooses you, so that you would bear fruit. We are unconditionally chosen. Number two, number two, we are atoned for. We are atoned for. Jesus says this in 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. The the atonement, the sacrifice that Christ makes changes us from being slaves into being friends. It it gives us a new status. It's it's because Christ died and he was condemned on our behalf on the cross. It's because he laid down his life for us. That we're changed from those who are condemned to those who are righteous. From those who are slaves to those who are children of God. From those who are enemies of God to those who are reconciled to him. From those who are cast out to those who are welcomed in. There's a change of status that comes for the children of God because of the atonement. The atonement did not merely make salvation possible. It actually accomplished it. When Christ died on the cross, he died for his people, for his friends. How did we get put into the vine? Christ died for us. The shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. The Savior died so that his people would live. How do we get put in the vine? Because Christ died for us. Number three, how did we get put into the vine? We were called to it. We were called to it. She says, already you are clean. That word clean is the, the Greek word that means purified. It's the word for ritual purification. It's a word that is used to describe when the priest would come and enter into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle clean the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 and 10 tells us that Christ has entered into the holy places and he'd sprinkled clean not just the altar of God but our heart. Already you are clean. Why? Because already you're purified. Why? Already you're sprinkled clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Because I have called you to it. Because my voice gives life. You're clean because I've made you clean. 
because I've spoken my word over you, because I, like Ezekiel over the valley of dry bones, have spoken into that dead body, and it has come together bone to bone and sinew to sinew, and I've spoken into it, and the Spirit of God has entered into it, and it lives. Why, why are we in the vine? Because Christ put us there. Because he has spoken us into the vine. He's called us to it, and his word creates life that, that we see in this, this section here, this, this deep theology where, where no one can guess that salvation is about anything other than God's grace where God's grace pervades the whole thing from beginning to end, that the beginning of salvation is God's grace and the end of salvation is God's grace and the middle of salvation is God's grace, that it's all due to his love and his kindness towards his people. We, we get ultimately into the vine. We ultimately get into the vine because of his grace, because of his mercy. What do we do once we're in the vine? We abide. We abide so that we bear fruit. It says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In this chapter, God is not somebody who starts the wheel of salvation spinning and then waits to see what happens. But the Father is the gardener and the vine dresser. Who, who is watching over the vine and tending it carefully. Now maybe you read verse 2 and you wonder, does this mean that, that we can lose our salvation? Does this mean that once I'm knit into the vine, I can fall away? And here we should be careful because we don't want to uh, push a metaphor too far, but I'm just going to assume that Jesus is not going to disagree with Jesus. So earlier in the Gospel of John, he said this, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father has put into me, all that the Father has given life and grafted into me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again, he says in verse, chapter 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And again, he says, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I'm going to assume that Jesus did not change his mind between John 6 and John 15. I'm going to assume that Jesus is consistent, and I'm going to assume that whatever else verse 2 means, it does not mean that Jesus was lying when he spoke earlier. It, it's a metaphor, it's an image, it's a simile that Jesus is giving to us that we would understand. But it is a warning for us. See, it's possible for a tree to have a branch that looks healthy on the outside. And have bark and, and leaves, and for there to be rot on the inside. It's possible for a tree, it's possible for a tree to have rot, and for that, that branch that on the outside looks healthy to be sick and cancerous on the inside. It's possible for a tree to look healthy and to not, and, and for that for that branch to not bear fruit. It says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And the point of what Jesus is saying in this part of verse 2 and in this part of verse 6 is that it's possible to look on the outside like everything is good, but on the inside to be corrupt and depraved. And unregenerate. And therefore, the warning for all of us is that we would check our hearts and consider, in the words of 2 Corinthians, whether or not we really are in the faith, whether or not we've really been put into the vine, whether or not the Spirit has, of God has been spoken over us, that we've come to life bone to bone and sinew to sinew. The, the, the question that is before us us, and that's before you this morning, is to ask yourself, am I really in the vine? Have I really been grafted in? Have I had this change of status? Have I been given union with Christ? Have I been, have I been welcomed into the covenant? Am, am I really in the vine? 
or underneath the bark and the outer layer, am I really rot? And if that's you this morning, if you look at your life and you don't see any fruit, you don't see any desire to love one another, you could not have come to a better building this morning. You could not have entered into a better place because this is a room full of people who have been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. A room full of people who have gone from lions into lambs. A room full of people who have gone from being a terror into being a friend. And we would love to walk with you about what it looks like to to become a Christian, to, to really press in and really produce fruit, to not be rotted on the outside, but to be regenerate. So the, the father prune, the father takes away branches that don't bear fruit. And you say, okay, well, what about those branches that are true? Those branches that do produce fruit, those branches that have it all, that everything is good with. What does he do? Surely he just he encourages it and he doesn't need to do anything to it. And well, no. Every branch that does bear fruit, he what? He prunes that it might what? Bear more fruit. In the words of Paul in Romans, God works all things to the good of those who love him. That if you are a true branch, if you've been truly regenerate, if the Spirit of God has been spoken over you by the Son and you've come to life bone to bone, sinew to sinew, here is God's promise to you. I will prune you. And if he doesn't prune you, he doesn't love you. God prunes those he loves. God chastises his sons. He loves his children enough to discipline them. And he loves his branches enough to prune them. What does that pruning look like? Well, that pruning is designed so that you would bear more fruit. Because the Father knows you better than you know you. And he knows those parts of your life which, which maybe draw your affections from Christ away that's robbing you of bearing fruit, that's robbing you of the joy that he has for you. And the Father in his kindness works in mysterious ways and and through his providence to bring things about to pass that we would have nothing left but to grab hold of Christ and to press in deeper to him and to find in him all the joy that we can. If God loves you, he will prune you. And if you have not been pruned, you have not been loved. He prunes those he loves so that they might bear fruit. I will tell you the times in my life where I've grown the most as a pastor and a father and a husband. Times in my life where I've grown the most as a Christian are either during or just after periods of pruning. And I have to believe there are some of us who are here today who are going through a season of pruning and you need to hear this, that he prunes because he loves. That his hand is gentle and it's wise and he's not going to lop off more than he needs to. But he will take away as much as he needs to so that you would bear fruit. The bottom line is this. How do we produce this fruit? We produce this fruit by abiding in Christ. By abiding in the vine, he says in 15.1, I am the true vine. And again in 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Far apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever abides in me, whoever maintains their union with me, whoever presses into me and grabs hold of me, and though everything else is taken away, Though goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, they grab hold of Christ. If you want to produce fruit, if you want to produce fruit in seasons of pruning, abide in Christ. He says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So he says, I abide in the Father. I've received the Father's love. I, I've sat under it and I've felt its, its heavy hand. And I, I can just tell you that He loves me and I've loved you and you should abide in that love. Abide in His love. Maybe say, how, how do I abide in His love? How, how do I do that? What practically, what do I do to abide in Him? 
What does it look like? Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. How do you abide in Christ? His words abide in you. His words dwell in you. you. You read them and you chew on them and you meditate on them and you saturate yourself in them and you soak them in and you memorize them and you, you, you do everything that you can so that His words become part of you, that you can't see where heaven be- ends and earth begins. That you, you, you do everything that you can so that you, can, that you just have His word in you. And as you... His words abide in you, you abide in Him. So how do you abide in Him? It, it belongs to the discipline of the Word of God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. There, there is no path to abiding that does not involve His Word. Secondly, you abide through prayer. You abide through prayer. Prayer comes up two different times in this, in this passage it comes up in verse 6, or verse 7, I'm sorry. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. And again in verse 16, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, so we abide not only through his word, not only through meditating and chewing on and taking in and saturating his, ourselves in his word, but we abide in Christ through prayer. Because it's in prayer that we step into our union with Christ. It's in prayer that we reach up to the throne of heaven through the Son. It's in prayer that we come before the Father and we, we it's like Aaron said in our prayer of confession, it, it's not that we hide from God because we've done something wrong. It's we, we draw near to God because we've done something wrong. That, that we draw near to Him and we, that, that's how we abide. Our word, His word is spoken to us and our words are spoken to Him in prayer. And as we abide in Him and He in us, so we produce fruit. As we meditate upon His love for us, as we receive His love and chew on it and think about it and maybe have friends we argue with about it, and it becomes part of us. And we speak our words back to God. And that changes us. That, that process works in us and needs us and it gets His Word deep into us. And then we produce fruit. And we produce love, and we love one another, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. I mean, yes, you should love one another, even when you realize you have to do it. But, but the way that this works, the way that we abide in Him, is, and the more that we meditate upon Him and think about Him and, and understand His Word and chew on it and wrestle with it, the more it's just it's natural to love one another. Even if you're an introvert, it becomes just part of you and natural. It's, it's, it becomes part of what you do. If you, as you abide in Him, you produce fruit. Maybe say, okay, well, what, what's the cost-benefit of analysis here? What's the return on investment? What good does that do me? What, what's the, what, is, what can I expect? What, what is the good that comes of me abiding in Him this way? Let me give you four, four benefits, four, four rewards, four blessings that come from abiding in Christ. All right? You ready? Here's the first one. If you produce fruit, if you abide in Christ so you produce fruit, the first blessing is this, that you get to abide. Okay? It says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, wait a minute. Does abiding come from me, from, from me producing fruit, or does me producing fruit come from abiding? Yes. As you and I love one another, as we go to the school of love, as we, as we are growing in his love, as we're working out in the gym of his love, as we, are, as we are meditating upon his word and praying, and as we're committing ourselves to, to his love, and we're, we're taking it into our lives and taking it into our hearts, as we're abiding in his love, and we produce fruit, and we start to love others. And then we abide in him more. See, there's this cycle that verses 9 and 10 give us that, that it says, as you abide, you'll produce fruit. As you produce fruit, you'll abide. The communion is the source of our love for one another and the result of our love for one another. It's an upward ascending spiral as you and I come to see more and more what it looks like that God 
has loved us. The longer that you love your children, the more you'll understand the Father's love for you and sending His Son to die for you. The more that you love your wife, the, the more that you'll understand the, the Son's love for His bride and giving up His life so that He might sanctify her and wash her clean. The, the more that we abide in Christ, the more fruit we'll produce, and the more fruit we'll produce, the more we'll abide in Christ. So the first reward that comes for those who produce fruit in keeping with abiding in Christ is that they would abide in Christ. Let me give you the second one. The second one is that we will have a more rewarding prayer life. A more rewarding prayer life. And verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. It will be done for you. And then again, he says in verse 16, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What this, the promise that is here is that as we abide, as we're changed, as we meditate and understand the Lord more and we come more in sync with his ways and his word, the more our prayers will be oriented towards the will of God. And the more often that we ask for things that are in sync with the will of God, the more that we'll hear God say, yes. When my son asks me for soda, I say, no. And you should all thank me for that. But when he asks me for something that's good for him, I say, yes. When you and I are, are changed and meditated, when, we're, when we meditate on the word of God and we're changed and we're, we abide and we produce this fruit, it changes our prayer life. We stop asking, for example, only for someone to be healed from suffering, although certainly we pray for that. But we ask that whatever God does in his, their suffering, that he would produce fruit. Why wouldn't God want to say yes to that prayer? That we stop asking for things that are oriented to the earth, and we start asking for things that are oriented to heaven. And God hears and answers those prayers much more often positively than negatively. So the second reward that comes, the second blessing that follows upon us producing fruit is we have a more rewarding prayer life. Here's the third one. The, the most important one. It's that God would be glorified. It says this in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You, you'll recall the, the, the sermon a couple weeks ago where we talked about how the true disciple is the, is the one who loves one another. That by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus refers back to that here in verse 8. He says, so prove to be my disciples. So show that you are one of my disciples. How do you do that? How do you show evidence of being his disciple? Well, you love one another. And what does that do? That gives God glory. If you're here today and you're saying, whatever I want to do with my life, I want to give God glory. That's a good thing to want in your life. How do you do that? Well, you do at least this. You love one another. You bear much fruit. You abide in Christ and you bear fruit. Father gets glory out of this when we abide in Him, when we remain in the Son, when His words become part of us and they embed themselves deep into us. And we... It produces fruit and we start loving one another. And the Father gets glory out of that. The Father says, By that my name is made weighty and heavy and worthy among men. The third benefit that comes when we produce fruit is God is glorified. Here's the fourth one. Our joy becomes full. Our joy becomes full. Look at verse 11. It says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That as we love one another, 
as we bear this fruit, as we are abiding in Christ and bearing this fruit of loving one another, says that the Son's joy is in us, that He rejoices over us, that it makes Him giddy and glad that when we love one another and when we hear His voice, when we see His joy, our joy becomes full. You understand that, that when we hear Him rejoicing over us, our joy becomes full. What child, when they see their parents clapping, doesn't clap in return? Our joy becomes full. We get gladness out of that. God is not calling you to love one another so that you could be dour and sour and bitter for the rest of your life. God says, I have joy for you. There's joy to be had. There's gladness to be had. There's mirth and laughter. There's a warm place to be had. If you would love one another, your joy might be full. What good does come from us bearing fruit? What's the benefit? What are the blessings that follow upon bearing fruit? Is that we could abide. Is that we'd have a more rewarding prayer life. It's that the Father would be glorified and that it's our joy would be full. So as we close, let me give you eight applications. Eight applications. Number one, know the love of God. Know the love of God. You might ask, what was it that led to old Tawny Scrawny being changed? Well, you could argue that he just got tired of waiting for the rabbits to stay still. You could argue the carrot stew was much better than he thought it would be. You could argue that he just got tired and it was way too much work to chase them all down. Or you could see that it was that he was welcomed into a family. And that he chose to stay there. How can you be changed? How can you be changed? You can be changed by staying in that family. By abiding in the love. By hearing the word of the Father, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. By being welcomed in by our older brother Jesus. How can you be changed by being part of the love of God, by, by receiving the love of God. Which means, number two, you and I must check our hearts that we would not be a dead branch. Do not come to this sermon assuming that you are not one. But honestly ask the Lord, God, am I full of rot? Am I, am, I, am I cancerous and diseased? Am I infested with parasites? Am I going to be thrown any minute now if I don't change? And maybe God has it in his plan for you to hear this message today and to be changed because of it. it nothing could be more pleasing to the Lord for you if this is you, that you would hear that and that you would respond in repentance and faith. So no, ask yourself, are you, are you a dead branch? Number three, abide in his love. Abide in his love. Abide in his word and abide in prayer. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of attempts sometimes to make the, the Christian life understandable, and I think many of those attempts are easy, but sometimes they give... Sometimes they give the impression, usually falsely warranted, that the Christian life is, is easy and that there's a silver bullet that you can go from here to here and zero to 60. And that's just not the way that it works. It comes step by step, reading His Word. And sometimes you don't know how what you read in Leviticus is going to matter nine months later. But you abide in His Word and His Word in you. Abide in His love. 
I'd also add this, that as he speaks to us, as we abide in his word, as we meditate upon his scriptures, that we should also return to him our words, that we should pray. If you're here and you say, I don't really know how to pray, there's a whole book of the Bible that is given to teach you how to pray. It's the book of Psalms. Just take two or three of those and pray those through and, and, and pray them as if they were your own words and meditate upon them. And as he speaks his word to you, you speak his, your word back. And the Father is slowly working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Abide in his love. Number four, know that his glory and your good are not opposed to one another. Know that His glory and your good are not opposed to one another. That God is doing, is calling you to love others today so that you might have joy and so that He might be glorified. These are not two separate things or antagonistic things or things which are, uh, are commanded to you so that you could be frustrated, but rather God wants you to have joy and that joy comes as you produce fruit. And as you produce that fruit of loving one another, he's glorified. Why wouldn't you want that? Which leads me to application number five. Love one another. Love one another. Of course, the longer that we abide in Christ, the more natural that this will be. But it would be misunderstanding the sermon to hear me say, Wait until it's natural to start loving one another, okay? No, you love one another even before it becomes natural, even before it feels normal. You start building that discipline because as you love one another, as you love other Christians, you become the kind of person that loves other Christians. You say, what does that love look like? It's, it's a love that's costly and sacrificial. It's, it's a love that initiates and it's a love that's for other Christians. We, we are willing to sacrifice, to give, up, to give up our right to be heard sometimes. It's a love that initiates. It's a love that seeks out the other. And it's a love for other Christians. It's the kind of love that's necessary to show forgiveness. It's the kind of love that's necessary to be reconciled. It's the kind of love that's necessary to deal with a stubborn child. It's the kind of love that is necessary to work with a difficult coworker. It's the kind of love that sometimes is necessary amongst other Christians. As you're with somebody that just, yeah, just you, you have a hard time seeing eye to eye with, don't wait until it feels natural to love that other person, but go out of your way to show love to that other person. Initiate that love towards them because that's exactly what Christ has done for you. Number six, if you struggle to love other Christians, pray for them. There is no greater cure in my life for loving those that I struggle to love. I know that you'd think that Pastor Matt is just perfect. He would never struggle to love anybody. But just talk to my wife. She will set you straight. There is no greater cure that you can have for loving others that is a struggle to love them than by praying for them. And not praying the imprecatory psalms, not praying, God, would you just smite them? Well, maybe. But praying that the Lord would work in them, that the Lord would show them his kindness towards them. They would sense his tenderness and his nearness towards them that they would go and produce fruit of their own that the lord would give you a soft heart towards them now pray for those whom you struggle to love number seven don't waste your pruning don't waste your pruning i think sometimes it's it's frequent and it's totally natural thing when we're going through suffering, when it seems like the wall is caving in on us, when it seems like the earth is about to open up and swallow us whole, to sink into self-pity and self-loathing. 
And I will tell you, if you spend your whole pruning doing that, you will have wasted it. Do not waste your pruning, but rather when you are going through a season of pruning, ask the Lord, what are you doing in my life? Why? What are you trying to show me in this? Why are you allowing this to happen? Would you give me eyes to see? Would you help me not to be too proud to learn this lesson? What are you trying to teach me in this? Why are you cutting that particular branch off? What are you trying to show me? I've said many times that one of the most encouraging people that I've ever met was somebody who's had one of the hardest lives that I've ever met. She, that her husband had been murdered in a tragic accident. That she had lost almost everything. That she had been diagnosed with cancer at a very young age. And she had lived most, much of her life indoors because she couldn't go out anywhere. And that she had some difficulties with her children. And yet, anyone who met her and who spent time with her would have told you that's the most encouraging person I've ever met. Because she just exuded the nearness and the tenderness of Christ. Because she had not wasted her pruning. But rather, when the Lord had knocked out the crutches from underneath her, she had grabbed hold of him for all that she could. Do not waste your pruning. In that season, you do not want to be somebody who's bitter and self-pitying. But rather, you want to be someone who has learned and who loves. And finally this, remember in your pruning that God does it because he loves you. God does not prune those he does not care for. And if you feel like you're being pruned right now, you feel like the, the, the walls are caving in on you. You feel that temptation to sink into yourself. Know that God has not forsaken you. and He has not abandoned you. And though everything else in the world seems like it's giving way, His love remains. Therefore, let us abide in it. Father in heaven, We ask today that you would help us to be changed from one degree of glory to the next. That you would change us from being lions into lambs. Father, we ask today that you would help us to go from being a terror to being a friend, from being an enemy to being the beloved. Father, would you help us not to lose sight of your love? Would you remind us again and again that whatever else happens, your love remains. And it's new every morning. If only we would have eyes to see. Pray these things in the name of your Son, our Messiah, our Vine. Amen.